Welcome to Bite Side. I'm trying to give it some of that energy, but also I don't want to go too crazy because it's one hell of a week for friends all around the world. And um, yeah, I'm going to tone it down a little bit, um, but start somewhere pleasant, go somewhere dark, and hopefully get somewhere vaguely pointing towards the future again. Nick Healy, how are you? Yeah, well, I'm not sure after that intro. No, uh, look, it has been a, a ridiculous week, a um, yeah. very hard week for a lot of people, as you pointed out. And I think, um, uh, you know, we're going to touch on on some of what we've seen and uh, I think the role of social media with it. But um, above all, I just hope that everyone is doing as well as they can be doing at the moment. Absolutely. Um, you know, one of the uh, look, I, I have one little loose end oh, that I think hit is me, worth hit me. What do we got? What do we got? And then we're going to dive straight into the, uh, that mess. Um, it's a very, very long tail loose end. Very early on when we were, uh, first, uh, getting started on Biteside here, we, we talked about the fact that, uh, early on when Disney Plus launched late last year, that The Simpsons could only be watched in widescreen. Ah, oh, a travesty of national proportions. Yeah, and like, you know, it was cutting off jokes. It was like a major issue for people trying to dive back into that well of 20 years of Simpsons comedy. And it has now, as of uh, end of last week, it is officially now available in original ratio. And there's a really interesting article actually at Variety.com talking about just how much work actually was required to fix it. You know, we sort of almost think it's just going to be the button where you make it put the black bars down the sides. <laughs> um, and so it's quite cool that they have a nice chat with some of the sort of technical people involved talking about how like, the work that had to go into kind of creating the system so that Disney Plus c- can know how to sort of deal with a ratio that isn't normal anymore and isn't something that it was designed to deal with um, just because of how sort of you know resolutions aren't as trivial as we think they are as humans. That classic issue of, you know, telling the computer how to do it versus <laughs> what we think is the easy way to do it. Um, so it, it's why it took them this long to get, get it fixed. So a really interesting kind of little thing. But if you are one of those fans who was like, I cannot watch it like this, uh, then you now have what you've been waiting for. Look, it is fantastic, and I think you raise a point that uh, mostly gaming people butt up against all the time, which is this idea that you just flick a switch that reads add multiplayer or make HD or, you know, redo this. It's not easy, and, um, you know, good on Disney+, Plus. good on Simpsons for actually listening and going out of their way to try and create something. Yeah, yeah. So no, that's good. And, and that's it. I think it is definitely the kind of show that sometimes can take the edge off. Um, when, yeah, when people just want to go back to some comfort food type of uh, TV programming, uh, and, uh, yeah, and relax a little bit because, um, look, Nick, why don't you sort of kick us, uh, cause obviously in your kind of main role right now as, you know, breakfast radio host, it's probably been coming up an awful lot. Um, these whole discussions of social media, um, how, the protest sort of movements have sort of kicked off. Um, I mean, last week we touched on the place where, uh, you know, sort of uh, Twitter finally decided to do a little bit of fact-checking um, in its own way. That's probably part of what has then sent Trump off the proverbial deep end and um, has made this kind of even uh, bigger and bigger rather than 
him being the kind of leader that might aim to somehow calm things rather than keep inflaming them. Look, it has been really intriguing. You know, we spoke about this last time about adding a, um, not even a fact check, but just a get yeah. more facts or get some facts linked to Trump tweets. And that was greatly upsetting towards him. And there's been a lot of talk about, um, I do believe he did actually sign an executive order yes. that kind of had all the impact of a sternly worded letter to the manager. I'm not really sure what that's actually gone on to do, if anything at all. Uh, we've then seen, of course, uh, Mark Zuckerberg come out and say, well, it's not actually social media's um, uh, job to be fact-checking what's on it, which um, ended up with some very, very hilarious posts, one from The Chaser, uh, which maybe I won't go into right now, but you can always hunt that <laughs> one down yourself. It went a little bit viral, uh, a much, uh, how do I put it, Less savage one from the shovel. So uh, yeah. that also went a little bit viral. But what we've ended up with now is, of course, when we look at the protests happening in America at the moment, they have really had their genesis in social media without the capacity to share those videos that showed the final moment of George Floyd's life, of, of, of his death at the hands of a white police officer. I don't think we would be seeing what we see on the streets now. And conversely, Social media has allowed us to see what is happening more than live TV has done. Um, I don't know about you, but I've been glued to Twitter especially, uh, often to my own detriment. I, I'm staying up late. I'm looking at what's happening in the US. It's been difficult. It's been troubling. But I don't want to imagine a world where we don't get to see that. I don't know. I don't have a good answer on this. And I, I knew this was going to be a fairly rambly topic, but... The visibility of the protests has been essential to where we can communicate about what's happening to me. Yeah. And look, I think that's it's such a strong point because I feel like, like a really big part of me is uh, like I'm torn on that whole idea that it's like these platforms have absolutely inflamed what is happening. They have promoted... Um, discourse that is, you know, more and more divisive. I think Facebook kind of more so than Twitter in the sense that it is so much more algorithmic. Um, you know, Twitter in the end, um, you know, you can still choose the latest posts view mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and it is so much more about real time. Um, whereas I know that when I go to Facebook, um, that it's showing me things that are as much as kind of a week old um, in the name of showing me what it thinks I want to see most. And in that sense, it is very much about trying to, in, in my context, trying to re-engage me in its platform to the point where I can actually kind of tell that it will, sh if I post something, it will show that to my friends more than when I would have used to post every day because it's oh. kind of trying to, get more engagement on my post to sort of show me that engagement is possible. You know, like if, you know what I mean? Like it, it's, it's constantly trying to push and pull to get the most out of every user. And in that context, it has been the most divisive. Um, but I still hate the general idea that, you know, they cause this division and then it's like, well, you know, they've kind of poured fuel on the fire, but at least, we can see the fire burning because it can show it to us in real time. I'm kind of, but we absolutely need that real time access. And I do feel like Twitter is 
you know, the best placed for that real time process. It, it's kind of so good at the news gathering aspect of what is good about social media. Uh, it's just that they have kind of, you know, that that bot problem uh, alongside oh. their problem of not, not uh, dealing with these problems. There was a, actually a news report the other day that someone managed to, they noticed that a trending topic was pulled down by Twitter um, related to Washington protests. And they said, yes, that there was misinformation actually being inflated by bot accounts wow. that pushed something into trending that was essentially pushing a fake video of like damage being done by protesters. So it's like, and, but it had been shared like tens of thousands of times at the point where they kind of pulled it down. And so it's so hard when there are these intentional bad actors trying to use what is happening right now, not just to sort of get involved and try to, you know, on, on the actual ground, you know, sort of change the protests or kind of push more violent things to kind of create those extra tensions, but just to literally fake news about what is happening and try to get into that real-time sweeping up of information to then sow more chaos. It's really, really tricky. And I think, you know, the magical perfect version is that we have a very clear system of checks attached to it that means we know if something is real or not um, and, you know, they're able to somehow push back against things that are being done to intentionally cause problems. But also, of course, you're like in the middle of a protest movement, How that is a, a big question on how do you make those decisions about what is or isn't uh, negative if it, that makes sense. It does, and it's incredibly hard. Um, you know, deplatforming works, and there is always a risk that social media can deplatform the protesters' voice, and that yeah. scares me, and I don't want that. But deplatforming works, as I said, and I do want to see voices of hate deplatformed, and I, I stand by that. A lot of people say, oh, free speech, I have the benefit of living in a country that does not have enshrined free speech. In fact, we are very, very vocally against hate speech, and I am very comfortable with that. I'm, I call last week when we were talking about Twitter's decision to add uh, a little link at the bottom of Donald Trump's tweet saying for more information on, I think it was mail-in or voter fraud from memory, uh, click here. Yeah. I called it mealy-mouthed, and I, I kind of stand by that. But but in the wake of hearing Zuckerberg talk to employees suggesting that he should have offered a bit more transparency but thinks that he's had a pretty thorough evaluation of Trump's posts and he said that the choice to avoid labelling or removing them was difficult or but correct, well, Twitter actually stands out like a beacon of hope compared to that. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm stunned that Zuckerberg is still taking this position. I'm, you know, we we live in an age where the American president has tweeted things like, as some people say, the only good Democrat is a dead Democrat. Now, he did that about four or five days ago, and I didn't even hear about it until the other day because oh we God. are just so used no, to stuff it. coming through. Yeah, exactly. I thought it was a myth. I had yeah. to go back and actually check some news reports about it. It did genuinely happen. Uh, you know, we have when and the what, looting like, starts, it, the shooting like starts. Like, it's still up? 
Oh, uh, very good or question. Or did you actually delete that one? Very good question. I do not remember. I'd have to oh quickly Google that, which like I can that is, do. It is astonishing. It is, but you yeah. know, we've had that when the looting starts, the shooting starts, the use of the word thugs. Yeah. Bizarre idea that somehow secret service are just waiting for protesters to come so that they can attack them and the, the young ones are really eager to get out there with their vicious dogs and yeah. ominous weapons. I mean, none of this makes any sense. And yeah. I yeah. I want platforms to stand up, but at the same time, I have to admit, I don't have an easy answer for them. Yeah. And look, you know, I think I feel like Mark Zuckerberg is living in a dreamland when he says things like it's about enabling as much expression as possible. Ugh. Because this comes back to this idea that somehow there is a perfect world where every voice can rise above, you know, all others and you know, the, what are they, what's the the rubbish? The, the marketplace of ideas. You know, it's like, no, like you are talking about someone who is literally has the biggest megaphone on the planet. Um, and, you know, he's using it in ways that nobody could have possibly believed it would be used. Like, I think that is a really important part of this is that, like, you know, we, it's funny, I've spent a lot of time in recent months writing about business contingency planning type stuff, right, in sort of the corporate sense um, of how businesses, you could have all the best laid plans in the world for how do we deal with a problem if something kind of breaks down or this or that. And it's like, well, the pandemic scenario has really sort of tested the limits of any pre-planning and uh, and now you even have to rethink the future of how do you plan for these sorts of things. Um, I think in the same way, it's like there's just no... Ten years ago, there is no way that when Facebook was being created, when Twitter was being created, when they were starting to get bigger, that no one would ever think that maybe one day the President of the United States will be the person testing the limits of our uh, our attitudes towards hate speech or inflaming violence or all these kinds of other policies that you might have in place. And so as much as, yeah, we kind of, we definitely wish that they dealt with this stuff years ago. I think it's like Zuckerberg is still living in this fantasy bubble that somehow, uh, you know, more speech is the solution to the highest office basically calling on, you know, or like inflaming more and more protests and violence in, in his own country. Yeah, I, I, look, this is the thing. We were never prepared for this. In hindsight, maybe we should have been. I don't know. Should we have been ready for this? I mean, whose responsibility is it when we give platforms out to make sure these platforms aren't abused? Yes, I was just going to say, I feel like you know, it was always one of the great parts of the origins of Facebook, that Facebook didn't have to ask anybody permission to create Facebook. Yeah, that's kind of part of that magical first age of the internet. Um, but now sort of there is so, they are so dominant as, you know, as an entity, sort of Google, Facebook, um, you know, that everything is funneled through these sorts of companies now that it is incredibly hard for anything else to rise up alongside them. And it's definitely that feeling I have of, you know, I'm more and more inclined to want to quit Facebook, but I know that all my overseas family, like they're so rusted on because just internet time moves so fast that it's like, well, 
they just could not easily be convinced to move anywhere else. And so it's then that idea of how do, how do you detach yourself from that when it comes to the idea of trying to actually continue to stay in touch with family. So the best position I've personally tried to take is that if I'm going over there just to try to catch up with family and things, now and then I'll just post something that talks about how horrible Facebook is um, and mostly just try to use it as that basic tool where I don't go near the, you know, the, the main news feed, I just go there to talk to specific people about specific things. While we're talking Facebook, though, and while we're talking about who has responsibility, in Australia, just a couple of days ago, we did see something very interesting come out of the High Court. Uh, media outlets are considering appealing this, but the High Court upheld a decision that holds media companies legally responsible for comments posted by readers on Facebook pages. They're they're being regarded as publishing those comments that could be defamatory. And, of course, a lot of media outlets are really worried about this. Yeah, and look, I mean, the biggest issue with that, which just feels like such a poor understanding from the legal decision makers, whether it's, you know, juries or judges, I can't remember exactly who's been making these decisions so far, but it's that idea that, there is no ability to pre-moderate uh-huh. comments that are left on a Facebook page. And so in the way that, you know, if you're running comments on your own website, you can absolutely send them into a moderation queue and you only reveal them to the public if you deem them to be acceptable. Um, but on Facebook, there is no option for a publisher to say, no comments are allowed until we have approved them. And so you would essentially have to have full-time staff members managing it just to have a page on Facebook because they don't give you that option. And so it does absolutely raise a huge issue with just fundamentally saying we will have a presence on Facebook where we post links to our stories because it's like suddenly everything else that appears there, it just it baffles me that this is kind of holding the publishers responsible for publishing on Facebook instead of Facebook responsible. I don't know. And I look, you know, I, I think I might have misspoken before. They're, they're looking at a high court challenge of a New South Wales court decision. It will be interesting yeah. to see where this goes. Uh, this all came out because of Dylan Voller, which I think is really interesting as well, given the context of it. Where does yeah. it leave us? I have no idea. I don't know. I do know that I'm going to continue to be glued to social media and seeing what what is happening over in the US because that is where I feel like I'm getting more immediate information. And I say that with full respect to the many, many, many Australian journos over there now who are doing incredibly hard work. Yeah. And look, you know, I saw one comment that Facebook has said, you know, alongside this. And look, um, you know, lots of props to Facebook staff members who have you know, conducted virtual walkouts and mm-hmm. things during this mm-hmm. week to try to put pressure on management. Um, Facebook itself said they were giving $10 million to racial injustice groups. Um, the quick maths says that that is 73 minutes of revenue based <laughs> on their quarter one oh. 2020 earnings. So, you know, uh, good on your Facebook. I mean, obviously, look, you know, money is money. It's a positive, but $10 million feels like they could have they could have dug a little deeper into their pocket than that if they really wanted to make a meaningful statement about 
you know, their openness um, for these kinds of issues. Yeah. <laughs> they could have. Look, you would have seen the same images as me uh, right across the social media, and it's always been intriguing um, as an outsider to to recognise some of the areas. If you've done a bit of travelling in the US, to, to look at those scenes of protest and go, oh, I know that area. But the one that I think probably hit you as hard as it hit me the Los Angeles Convention Centre, where you and I have been more than a few times for E3, seeing the National Guard parked there, using it as a marshalling station. Yes. Really scary stuff because, I mean, look, right, these images from all over America right now are kind of that weird, you know, movie-type stuff where, you know, it's that eternal feeling of, like, how is this how is this actually happening in America? Is this real? Is this really, you know, like there's that sort of bewilderment attached to it. And I know like I couldn't help but kind of laugh in that kind of dark, dark laugh <laughs> in your mind when you see those sorts of pictures and go, I've seen I've seen Activision setting up something that looks almost identical to promote the launch of a new Call of Duty game by having a whole <laughs> bunch of Humvees parked out the front of the LA Convention Center. And this time those Humvees actually are there as part of a, a National Guard military action against American protesters. Like, how the hell is this actually reality? And E3 was meant to be next week. Yeah, like, I know. So it's I know. a really weird alignment where you go, oh, my God. Like, if it wasn't for coronavirus, then this would be happening. Um, but if it wasn't for coronavirus, good Lord, would it all be, you know, people would be getting on planes right now to go there to go to that event if it was a normal year um, and this would be in the midst of this stuff happening at the same time. It is, you know, it is so weird. <laughs> it so, is incredibly so, so weird. weird. And look, you know, we do know that there were a lot of um, gaming announcements that were going to be held virtually this week. Uh, many, many of those are being postponed, I think quite rightfully so. Uh, so a very good one from Sony basically saying more important voices need to be heard now. I think that is uh, oh, that's great. an incredible attitude towards that. Um, but yes, even even in the wake of coronavirus stopping the live event, we are seeing those uh, virtual events postponed for a while as well. And uh, as I said, I, I think I'm actually really pro that idea. Yeah. And look, you know, it's like I've seen there's still a bit of a calendar of events, but it's mostly things like more of the, the indie type stuff. And like, it's not the major companies. It's a lot of the smaller groups and collectives like a, you know, like a VR website trying to do a bit of an event, uh, like upload VR, I think they're called. But this, I think still, well, unless the schedule's out of date, but there's a few of those sorts of things listed as people trying to just, you know, reveal interesting stuff at the same time. But I do really appreciate people responding to what is happening right now in real time. Like I know, you know, even from my own perspective, you know, there was all the talk of the kind of the blackout Tuesday stuff um, happening this week. And, you know, I've just been kind of trying to tweet a lot of, you know, of other voices into my timeline on Twitter and things to just try to promote creators and creative people who, you know, are from, you know, uh, other communities so that, you know, just just trying to kind of shut up as a white dude a bit more and listen a bit more and reflect on that sort of stuff. And so it's actually good to see these sorts of industries also trying to say it's, you know, it is easy to to postpone a virtual event, right? You, are, you put so much less... Cash on the table yeah, in huh? terms of saying, uh, you know, we've 
we've set up a giant booth and we still have to hold our event. This is like, we can hold the same event next week. We can, you know, it's very easy to delay a virtual event. There's so little uh, money on the table to just pause that. So that I think is a really, really, um, yeah, really positive side of that. It is. Look, and I just found the quote from Sony, and I do really like this. Uh, We do not feel that right now is a time for celebration. And for now, we want to stand back and allow more important voices to be heard, which is just great. Um, just moving on just a little bit, just because, oh, my God, we got mired down. This is very, very dark. This was going to be a year <laughs> where we're expecting to hear quite a few more details about new console hardware for the first time in a long time. Yeah, and I think, like, it is a funny one there that we, um, that you know, that I think, who is it? I think both, I'm pretty sure both, Xbox Series X and PlayStation 5 have both sort of said the hardware will still be coming out this year, regardless of uh, coronavirus pandemic issues and, you know, definitely probably some delays in manufacturing. But overall, they're, you know, they've said it'll still launch this year. Um, but I kind of have that question of, you know, whether, whether with everything, I mean, it's not even a question of everything else happening in the world, really. Is it just that we're getting old or something? But I'm not, I'm not that fast about when I get my next console, so much as just, you look, when new games come out, I like having cool new games. Um, and I'm just not sure that now that we're at this window where, you know, HD looks pretty great on the current era of, of consoles, if I'm desperately waiting to swap out yet another piece of hardware and, and swap in another one. How the, about you? Oh, look, the funny thing is, is because I've never really managed to get myself into PC gaming, um, just because I find that too complex, I do kind of enjoy the next console cycle. Okay. I know, I know it's not just about the hardware, but I do kind of really enjoy going like, oh, okay, well, it's been six years. I can spend some money again. I mean, as opposed to the constant churn of upgrades when it comes to PCs. And look, <laughs> I, I think they're doing some point. really clever stuff. So I'll call out, say, Xbox. The Series X, you, the, my understanding is if you buy a game, say, Cyberpunk, it will install the Series X version if you have Series X. If if you don't, it will install the version that's right for your game, but you're still just buying Cyberpunk. You don't need to worry about making sure you're buying the right version for your console. That will be done automatically for you based on the hardware you're using. That's good. That's actually really good. That is great to it's me. it's definitely been, yeah, I think ending that feeling... Yeah, you know, that feeling of having to you know, check and keep up and in particular to rebuy, um, oh. that is definitely a big positive. Look, I think the um the other thing is is for people who will keep an older console around, my understanding is your version will work on both. So it's not a matter of you, you know, like let's say you've bought so I don't know why I'm stuck on Cyberpunk probably because I'm really looking forward to it. Say you've bought Cyberpunk for your current generation Xbox. If you then upgrade, you'll be able to just move that copy along. Yeah, and I did hear something recently about the idea that um, Series X will, at like at launch, support thousands of Xbox 360 and Xbox One games. I think in my household, there's definitely been a desire to you know to still run the old machines. Mm. You know, with kids in the house, they have got like beloved old games that some of them haven't been available in the newer consoles. Probably a, a classic one, actually, that is one of the main reasons I still have an Xbox 360 plugged in, even though we haven't got around to playing it, honestly. <laughs> um, 
but the old Marvel Alliance games, like really oh. great beat 'em up games, the whole kind of lineup of all these great heroes, really good fun stuff. Um, I've kept wanting to sort of, you know, introduce the kids to that, but that has not been on the backwards compatibility compatibility lists. And so I've needed to, you know, sort of have the console there to be able to use that for a long time. Some of the Viva Pinata games weren't uh, on the, you know, the backward compat list. And then they did finally come across. And so after a few years of my daughter having kind of always gone back to play that, that was one that we were able to kind of tick off that list of, okay, there's one of the reasons why we still have that plugged in. So that idea of, you know, and that's certainly part of the PC upgrade cycle that I think hopefully, you know, uh, Microsoft is trying to emulate there for that. Well, I mean, literally emulate, um, over on the console side is to just not, yeah, not make you think about which piece of hardware you have, but that it's, you know, the software does all the smart work required. And I think actually one of the things I heard was that even some of those old games are going to run at higher frame rates. So they will actually look a lot cooler um, once they're ready for Series X. So that's, you know, that's a positive too. It is a very, very big positive. Um, look, t- talking about positives and just moving on a little bit, you and I yeah. have chatted a lot about Zoom. Uh, just about sure what have. Zoom has gone on to do in the age of the pandemic crisis. They're reaping the rewards of that now. Have you seen their earnings report? No. I like. I, I think I heard a quick hint that it's pretty good. <laughs> it, it's really good. So apparently, and this, I think this is just today, Zoom reported making, this is US, $328 million for February to April quarter, uh, more than double the same time last year and uh, well yeah, above wow. the estimate of $200 million that they thought they were going to make. Oh, that's, yeah, that's... <laughs> that's pretty great. So, yeah, when, when you see that kind of a beat on what their uh, expectations were <laughs> ahead of, yeah, then that's that's huge. What's that like? A, that's like 70-something percent probably over what they were expecting. It's just um, crazy. To have made. And yeah. especially how and much of just, that would be it's free so users. Well. Yeah. And I think the one thing I did here was, you know, their, um, you know, their revenue per user um, has fallen. Surprise, surprise, an awful lot of free users. Um, but that, yeah, that they are confident that in coming months that sort of that, that, uh, yeah, that marker will sort of head back up into, you know, whatever sort of zone that they like it to be in. Um, but I'm sure it's partly that, yeah, they've won a lot of new users and that has included new corporate users. And, you know, slowly but steadily people will, you know, just roll off how intensely they've been using it through the pandemic. But, you know, a lot of those users will remain and be converted into paying customers along the way. So it's, you know, it's a pretty solid uh, win for them. And again, I, you know, I still get, uh, I'm still using, like I've had calls on BlueJeans, WebEx, Microsoft Teams, <laughs> and Zoom. Um, I mean, I think all four probably in the last seven days. Um, and, you know, the others have definitely been trying to kind of learn a bit more from it, but just the... The reliability and the ease of use for Zoom has definitely been something that stands out still. You know, I feel like the video is more stable than those other services Mm -hmm. um, on a regular basis and that even if the video has a problem, that the audio rarely slips. Like, again, it's that idea of it knows where the priority needs to sit in that balance and that's where it's just, yeah, worked so, well, I did see another quick uh, thing that was pointing out that 
you know, that uh, Microsoft has definitely been getting very aggressive in recent months, well, weeks, I guess, because it's also, you know, <laughs> months ago, this wasn't even a battle, right? It's still so fast moving. Uh, but that, yeah, Microsoft's really been, I believe one of the quotes was, you know, getting its elbows out um, <laughs> when it comes to really sort of using its uh, place in a lot of schools already to really push for Teams to be used more than Zoom um, in those kinds of school environment uh, video conferencing tools because they really see that, you know, this is now what, like, I know Teams has plugins that work nicely with Zoom, right? But again, that's probably from before this window where everybody suddenly saw that almost like the core value of these collaborative tools now is in how well they do video conferencing, not just how well they let you type messages and share documents. Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. And I think for me, the the big indicator here is that for people outside of the business world, for people who are using this for personal communication, they're calling it Zoom. Oh, I Zoomed someone. I had a Zoom chat on the weekend. It doesn't even really matter what video uh, conferencing software they're using anymore. It's just called Zooming now. And that tells you really how well they've done getting in people's minds. Yeah. I mean, like, right, for something to so rapidly become, you know, the zeitgeist of having an online video call um, is incredibly impressive because this tech's been around for years, you know, and... You know, I mean, it's no one's just cared. remarkable that the, that they've won it so, um, yeah, so rapidly. Uh, it's it's really impressive. I, I'll I'll segue into this next thing because it's another one of those battlefield areas that has actually been kind of impacted in the other direction by the yeah uh, you know, the whole question of the pandemic, and that's actually the self driving car stuff. I okay, mean, this time last year. I feel like we would we were all ready for you know self-driving cars to be part of our future. We even kind of very very quickly, um, like I know my own long-term thinking about it was well we'll stop owning cars because you know once it's self-driving it doesn't matter where it parks itself. It doesn't you know I just dial it up when I need it and therefore I don't need to pay to maintain it. Mm. It becomes almost like that Uber self-driving fleet becomes this sort of shared asset. But what they're now seeing is this idea of actually in the kind of post-pandemic world, people are now so much more focused on these questions of hygiene that it actually becomes that idea of, wow, do I want to share a vehicle where I put myself and my family and and personal things? And if I touch it, who else has touched that stuff? That suddenly it really kind of reshapes that thinking about what do we want from autonomous vehicles when we want to also know that they're being managed and cleaned appropriately. It's a really interesting one because for many years now, people have been talking about the idea of heading towards car as a service as opposed to car as a product that you own. And indeed, the idea maybe that ownership of a car would be an investment of some form. That car would then generate money for you while not being used. Um, Incredible to think that this is having the feet kicked out from under it before it's even started. Yeah. I mean, it's like it's such a yeah fascinating Shift and again, I guess one of those business risk type questions around you know what do you how do you plan for what could be the things that sort of interrupt this roadmap and it wasn't <laughs> um, you know it wasn't just we need to make sure the autonomous cars are better at being autonomous in the long term it was like oh uh, global pandemics changes people's thinking about cleanliness and 
<laughs> and, and, and what they're willing to share. This isn't something that can be fi- fixed by technology either. This is about perception. It doesn't yeah. matter. If you told me that the cars flashed a UV light and sprayed itself down and did everything like that, that's great. But I've still then got to decide for me whether that's okay. This is a heart decision now. Yeah, yeah. And, like, it really is a fascinating issue. And, actually, I mean, it reminds me as well that Uber has just start, recently started another sort of alternate spin on the idea of um, how you how you hire an Uber because it, it suddenly kind of makes more sense that they've now offered an idea of saying for $50 an hour you can have a private driver. And it's something that, you know, when if you think of an hourly rate for – you know, if if you were sitting in an Uber going somewhere and it took an hour to get there, it would probably cost you more than 50 bucks, mm. you know, because just that's how kind of the distances and the timeframes are going to work. But this idea also kind of then gives you a better sense of almost like the, the cleanliness of the vehicle because you think, okay, well, we're going to go somewhere, we're going to go to an event, we're going to do this, that, the other. And like if we're jumping in and out of a vehicle, we know it's the same vehicle where we're going to be you know, assured that before it arrives for us that the driver has cleaned it, that all those kinds of things have been done, and now we're going to, you know, and it's kind of that almost that luxury experience in a sense of just going, yep, this is our private vehicle for the next few hours um, and, and the expectations that can kind of come with that. But it's fascinating that they've felt like that is one of those steps that they could take to try to promote um, yeah, a kind of a healthier or more hygienic sense of your relationship with that car in that window of time that you need it. Yeah, I do not think the future of rideshare and how it works has ever been so uncertain. Um, not that it'll disappear, but what does it look like at the end of all of this? We might have to leave it there, Seamus. I'm very sorry. No, all good, mate. Uh, where... Can people catch up with all things Nick Healy during the week while they're waiting for us to come back? Look, come and catch me on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Dr. Nick. That's DR underscore Nick. But I am uh, trying to be very, very quiet on social media at the moment so that um, other voices can be heard. Lovely. Yes, I'm I'm retweeting a lot of other voices at the moment. So um, if you come and find me at, at Seamus, you'll see all that there. Uh, and then, of course, you'll find all the other stuff from Byteside, from this show, from the other shows at Byteside.com and email ask at Byteside.com if you want to tell us anything about how you're doing and your thoughts on all of this craziness and hopefully that, you know, on the other side of it, we make up a better world because we have to kind of stick to it this time. We can't just keep letting this stuff slide every single time it happens. Until next time, we'll talk to you then.